Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the sanctuary for independent media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community, I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Bria Barthel. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's interview with Larry Sharp, the Libertarian candidate for governor. Then HBCC basketball coach Michael E. Long talks with Jacob Boston about the impact sport has on communities. Later on, we hear about Troy Foundry Theater's first musical, billed as a love letter to Troy, that opens this week. After that, Focus Lab artist-in-residence Jack McGuire tells us about his upcoming interactive shoreline performance piece called The New Island Project. And finally, Tom Francis showcases the work of poet Rebecca Shimeda in this week's Poetry Showcase. But first, here are some headlines. Sales of homes in the Capital District declined for the 14th month in a row. The price of housing continues to rise. The median price for new home builds increased to $479,040. That's 10% more than a year ago. And a related note, New York State has the lowest homeownership rate in the nation. Driven by low rates in New York City, according to a report released recently by the state comptroller, only 53.6% of New York households own a home in the second quarter of 2022, compared to 65.8% nationally. New York also has a racial and ethnic ownership disparity that is higher than the rest of the country. The Anti-Deflammation League has condemned the anonymous Kennedy Project for using Nazi imagery in a swipe against a Democratic candidate Michelle Austerlich's state Senate campaign in Schenectady County. The group noted that between 2020 and 2021, the number of reported anti-Semitic incidences in New York spiked 24% to a 42-year high. The Kennedy Project defended their use of such imagery under the grounds that the original content was a critique of the Trump administration by Jewish comedian David Mitchell. The state of New York announced that it has issued more than 1,900 extreme risk protection orders under the state's red flag gun law, a major increase. Four days after the mass shooting in Buffalo, Governor Hochul issued an executive order requiring state police to expand their use of the red flag law to, to avoid, to help prevent shootings. The red flag law prevents individuals who show signs of being a threat to themselves and or others from purchasing or possessing any kind of firearm. The state is allocating $4.6 million to the state attorney general's office to support police officers when they file a request to the court for such orders. And that's it for the headlines. Libertarian and Green Party candidates for governor in New York are not on the ballot due to legislation from Democrats. Hudson Mohawk Magazine continues to report on this issue, and Mark Dunley spoke with Larry Sharp about his write-in campaign for governor. We're joined by uh, Larry Sharp, who is the uh, nominee for the uh, Libertarian Party here in New York State for, for governor. 
Uh, at the moment, his name's not appearing on the ballot, even though four years ago, uh, Mr. Sharp got, I think, more than 100,000 votes that qualified his party to be on the ballot again in uh, uh, four years, 2022. Uh, so, Larry, welcome to the show. And why aren't you going to be on the ballot? And, and maybe just give us a little bit of your background about uh, who Larry Sharp is. Mark, thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it. Yes, I am Larry Sharp, and I should be on the ballot. You're right. But sadly, I was sued by the Republicans and the Conservative Party and thrown off the ballot in civil court because they don't want me on the ballot. And I get it. Um, they don't want any competition. And this is what's been happening in these uh, last couple of years. The two major parties have gone out of their way to make getting on the ballot so hard that literally no one can do it. It is actually impossible. And I've gone to court trying to tell judges it's impossible. They say, no, it's possible. Then nobody makes it. And they go, oh, wait, well, no, it's still not impossible. You guys are just bad. So a multimillionaire worth almost $50 million couldn't make it. I, who was on the ballot last time, couldn't make it. A, uh, a sitting congressman couldn't make it. So none of us could make it. But all of a sudden, somehow, um, it's not impossible. The reality of it is they're trying to rig the system because coming up here next year, New York State will be using taxpayer dollars to pay for elections, and they don't want anybody else like, you know, the Libertarians or the Greens, who are actual independent parties in New York State. They don't want us to get any of that, that money. They just want to keep that grift all for themselves. You know, and I will note the Libertarians, which are probably the third largest political party in the country, is actually we well moment, known yes. for, for being the one third party that manages, at least for president, to get on the ballot in almost every state pretty much every single time. So the fact you were not able to get on New York really says something about the New York law. But why are you running for governor? Well, you know, the reality of it is initially I ran because I was angry. I ran in 2018 because I was considering leaving the state. The state is oppressive in many of its rules and laws and regulations and things. And we're paying all this, uh, all these fines, fees and taxes, and we're not even getting anything good for it. At least if you're going to tax me, give me what I want, at least. And I, as a libertarian, I'd like as little tax as possible. But if I'm going to get taxed, at least give me what I want. And I'm getting nothing that I want. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to pack up and leave. But when I went to other states, I saw how, how good it seemed. And I got angry. I said, why in the world should I have to leave the state that I love, where I'm born, where I live, where my business is? So I said, I'm going to come back, run for governor, and fix things. That was 2018. Mark, did, that did not go as I had planned. I did not win the election. I'm not the governor. Um, but in that run, I saw how bad it was. I saw how the two-party system, which is now basically a one-party system here in New York State, creates corruption, encourages people to not care, it encourages negative campaigning, nothing moving, larger bureaucracies. We throw money at problems without ever fixing them. And I got upset and I said, you know what? I'm gonna try this again. So as I'm gonna try it again, the sad part is I was actually polling at 6% last December before I even announced. Why? Because I cover this state every single year. I go to all 52 counties every single year, whether I'm running or not, to stay in touch with New Yorkers. And people like me. So they're like, yeah, I like this guy. And that's when the hammer came down. And that's when all of a sudden the big guns came after me. So I still want to run, even though I'm not in the ballot, because if I get 130,000 write-in votes, and that's the critical piece, write-in Larry Sharp, write-in votes, I will still have a chance at having at least one independent party in New York next year. And, and I, I want to have an independent party. That's and I, I believe your last name is actually spelled S-H-A-R-P-E. Correct. And the E stands for electable. So don't forget that. For electable. So what are some of the big differences you have with uh, Hochul and Zeldin? 
Well, if you're Hoku, all you do is yell Zeldin's evil. And if you're Zeldin, all you do is yell Hoku's evil. So the fact that I'm not just yelling at people and calling to me, but right there makes me special. Uh, but I actually want to fix things. I actually want to create a situation where we change how we fund things. I want to create an actual separate company trust, which is similar to what they do in Norway and in uh, Singapore, a, a special trust paid for by permanent capital with some dividends going to them, dollars coming in separately that can actually pay for some of our social issues, right? We can't keep paying for our social products and our social uh, problems through taxation. We have too many New Yorkers leaving. We have literally hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers leaving every single year. We've lost about $23 billion in net worth in the past three years, and our budget keeps going up. So if we're going to help people in New York State through the government at all, we got to find another way of funding it. And that's one way. It's a separate trust that will pay for education. If it pays for education, that will lower property taxes because school tax goes away. It could also create a situation to where we eventually get rid of our state income tax, which is why some people are leaving as they go to Florida and Tennessee and Texas, all who don't have income taxes. We can find other ways of servicing our people without having to increase the tax base. That will change a lot. I also want to support localism, which is more important than anything. Localized credit unions, localized co-ops where the government actually assists people in, in workers actually voluntarily getting the, you know, the, the rights and the ownership of the means of production. I think we can do that without government interference. Once government gets involved, government winds up owning everything. And when government fails, we just throw more money at it, hence the big problem. But we can make it to where government can assist the private sector, locally people in creating their own co-ops, their own entrepreneurship, relaxing licensing laws so that people can start business with credentialing instead, making the, the poorer communities more entrepreneurial, shifting our um, shifting our uh, uh, public housing into rent to own, giving people more opportunities to own to own their properties they want to, buffering against gentrification while giving people the ownership opportunity and actually giving people the opportunity to pass down property and pass down um, uh, ownership of, of things and resources to their family. I think we can do a lot of that in New York State. We don't do any of it. Now, classically, you know, libertarians are known for, uh, you know, sort of leave me alone. Um, you know, yes, let, absolutely. let's not, uh, you know, be punishing people for using drugs. Correct. Uh, support the Second Amendment in terms of, you know, right to, to guns. Um, absolutely. Usually, usually anti-war. Yes to all those things. But again, nationally, that's war. New York doesn't deal with the war aspect. But I, of course, I'm anti-war. Why would I think bombing other people is a good idea? We always wind up bombing people and it never even gives us any. Again, if I don't want to bomb people, but if I am, at least be, be an actual enemy that's going to hurt us. We're bombing people who aren't even our enemies. So, yes, I don't want to bomb people. I completely agree. I'm 100% for the Second Amendment. I think that we should have the right to, to bear arms, defend ourselves. And we see it's a buffer against crime. It's a buffer against it's a buffer against people just surrendering their rights. It's a buffer against everything that's bad. So 100%, I want to uh, support the Second Amendment. And of course, I want localism. So I want more people to be left alone to the best of their ability. We are a big, diverse state. And the idea that one city should be controlling everything is silly. I don't want the people you know, of Monroe County having to be the same as the people of Erie County, people of Wyoming County, people of Allegheny County being the same as Brooklyn or Queens. Let each county be the county it wants to be. Leave everybody alone. Yes. Now, now we have about two minutes um, left. Um, now, do you have a lieutenant governor running mate? And are there other, you know, libertarians around the state that you're trying to highlight who run in this November as well? All over the place. We have a bunch of people running. But what I care about 
is getting ballot access. And New York State, because they didn't put me on a ballot, the only thing that matters is me getting ballot access for the party for next year. So what, I, what everyone to know is, if you want someone who polls high enough, who will speak to both the left and the right, who does care about all sides and wants to get more people in the independent line, you have to write in Larry Sharp for governor November 8th. You mentioned you're a little bit of a business person. What, what is you know, a little bit of your background for people? Born and raised in New York City. I now live in Queens. I'm a business consultant when I do work. Now I'm not working. I just run for office and I campaign. But when I'm not uh, campaigning, which is only, only ran twice for governor both times, I'm a business consultant and a teacher and a trainer. I've taught at the um, graduate level of Yale and Columbia. I've taught at Baruch College, John Jay College. I do some veteran work because I'm a former Marine. I spent uh, seven years in the Marine Corps in the 80s and 90s. And that's how I make my money. I have a family here in Queens, a wife I met in high school, two kids and a dog, American dream, I guess. But I'm trying to keep New York in, into a spot to where people can stay, where families will want to stay and retire. I want to stop people leaving. That's number one thing. And without a third party, this will not work. Without a third party that will allow you to be as liberal or as conservative as you want to be in the state, or just leave others alone, without that, we will have one party rule. And whether you lean left or lean right, wherever you lean, one party rule means corruption. 10 seconds Republicans left. Republicans so run the state. Larry Sharp, libertarian governor, needs to be right in. Get a website. People. LarrySharp.com or just Google Larry Sharp, Twitter to TikTok to YouTube to Facebook to all the things. Larry Sharp, libertarian candidate for governor, has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. And as mentioned, that's Larry Sharp, S-H-A-R-P-E. For more on this issue of independent third parties, including the Green Party and Libertarian Party, not being allowed on the ballot, find a recent interview with Howie Hawkins, the Green Party candidate for governor, on our website at mediasanctuary.org. Correspondent Jacob Boston is interested in the connections between sports and community wellness. So he reached out to Michael E. Long, HVCC's basketball coach. They spoke about his half-century-plus coaching tenure, the places where he's coached, and how sports have positively impacted the communities where he has coached. So how long have you been coaching? You can, you can start with this in general, and then how long have you been coaching here? Well, I started uh, back in the early 70s, and I coached uh, a year at Siena. Then I coached at uh, College of St. Rose for 13 years. I was the head coach there. Uh, then I went over to uh, Junior College of Albany, which is now Sage College of Albany. I went over there as an assistant for four years, and I was the head coach 13. Then I uh, was an assistant coach at Christian Brothers Academy for three years. Then I went back to St. Rose uh, for about seven years, was an assistant coach there. And then I've uh, been uh, head coach here at Hudson Valley the last 10. So what are the what are some of the things that you've seen throughout your long tenure of coaching? What are some of the ways po sports has positively impacted the players around you and just the community around you? I think uh, one of the values that I've found in coaching over the years uh, was feedback that you get from your players as the years go on. Uh, in fact, uh, 
there was a uh, young man that played at, at St. Rose that called me up over the weekend. And I had not talked to him in at least 12, 13 years. And he called up just to ask how I was doing and which I thought was pretty special. And uh, I asked him how he was doing and he has a pretty good job. He's in uh, management now. And um, he, one of the reasons that he called was that he felt that um, back when he was playing that he gave us a little bit of a hard time, the coaching staff. And, um, and now he looks back and he realizes that uh, us coaches uh, did a lot for him and he didn't even realize it. And uh, now that he's in a management position, the shoe is on the other foot where he has to um, manage people and he sees how he, he was and that um, it has proved to be a valuable tool to kind of learn from what we were able to do for him and how we treated him. So coaching over the years, I've had quite a bit of that, uh, the positive feedback that comes. Um, I never made a lot of money coaching and I realized I wasn't in, for, in it for that, that I was in, in it to be around young men and uh, hopefully uh, give them a good experience, have a fun experience playing. And uh, I've found that sports in general is a great um, teacher of life, life lessons. And if guys could learn from that, it was going to help them become more successful as they went down the road after graduation and get out into the real world. So you talked about sort of, or you kind of mentioned the life lessons that sports can teach you. Um, what is one of the main ones you try to teach the players that you have coached over the years? Well, I think uh, what's important is that as you go through your life, there's going to be times where you haven't quite uh, made the right decision but you learn from that and you improve and you get better. And that's what sports are all about. You're gonna go out, you're gonna make mistakes on the basketball floor and you try to learn from that and you try to get better. And uh, uh, it also teaches you how to get along with people, um, how to make friends, how to keep friends, um, how to compete, how to win, how to lose. Um, there's a right way and a wrong way to do a lot of different things. And I think uh, athletics and sports are uh, have a great way of bringing those lessons along. What are some of the positive impacts you think sports has had on this community specifically? And that uh, we have um, a strong uh, athletic community on campus. We've got great facilities here. Um, I think it's a positive thing for Hudson Valley uh, to see that things are being done the right way and that you're going to attract uh, more student athletes and more students to the campus. Because I think if you build up a good reputation, um, it, it does make uh, the whole campus community much more attractive. And uh, they've got a great 
academic uh, uh, reputation here from what I've seen over my years, and I've been in a number of different schools. Uh, what they are able to offer students here is tremendous. Uh, they've got a, a great um, amount of uh, academic uh, choices that you can make. And then the other thing that is really a positive thing is the student assistance, academic assistance, is one of the best I've seen um, in terms of what, if a student comes in here and wants to be successful, all he has to do is take advantage of what they have to offer here and, and they will be. Um, so I think all of that has worked hand in hand. Athletics um, helps uh, academics and the academic community here has helped athletics. What has been your favorite thing coaching throughout the years? Oh, it's like I was talking about at the beginning of the interview is uh, a call that I got over the weekend. You know, I, I get those every now and then. Um, and just uh, the, the friendships that I've been able to develop over the years with uh, a lot of my former players. Uh, also to see um, a number of young men that came from a tough background and were able to put things together for themselves. And now they're out there and they're, they've got a great job. They're married. They've got their own kids and their own kids are doing well. I mean, it, it, nothing gives me more pleasure than to see that kind of thing and, and uh, get that kind of feedback. Um, we have uh, College St. Rose will have uh, an alumni weekend, have alumni games, and I'll go back and see a lot of guys that played for me over the years there. How important do you think sports is to a community? I think um, it can be a great uh, cohesive um, activity for uh, not only the, the students that are involved in actually playing, but the people that enjoy watching watching the game, it gives them something to wrap their hands around and uh, be happy about. Our region's one of the best regions in the United States, and that's something to get excited about, and the community to get excited about, that Hudson Valley's got a program that's uh, uh, very competitive with teams that have won or been associated with national championships. Um, so that's a, a positive thing to bring to the community. And yeah, I think sports is also important for our community too, because like you said, it's a cohesive activity, whether that's fans, you know, getting together, meeting new people at sports games, being excited to go to sports games. It keeps people out of trouble being at games and it keeps the players out of tr trouble playing games. Um, when I was young, way back in the day, um, just to be able to play sports gave me something uh, purposeful to do. It kept me occupied. It kept me focused on academics because I knew if I didn't do it academically, I wasn't going to be able to participate in sports. And that's one of the things I try to drive through with uh, the young men that are playing basketball for me. Uh, there are certain uh, academic requirements that they have to follow here in order to be eligible to play. And I've seen some guys that have lost that opportunity and it hurts them. 
they don't they don't finish academically. Um, they leave and uh, they they're uh, wandering around, wondering wondering what they're going to do next. Uh, if they can stay with it academically and stay with it uh, in terms of sports, then that that's something that's going to help them in a later in life. And um, you know, I tell a lot of my guys are here for two years. I said, not all of you are going to move on to a four-year school and play basketball. Um, so you want to make sure that um, you um, get it done here academically, get your associate's degree, and hopefully move on to a four-year school and continue your education. But at, at the very least, have your associate's degree because that means a great deal. And here, uh, there's um, a lot of STEM programs that are excellent, and I've seen uh, a lot of my guys uh, get out and go right to work afterwards and are doing very, very well. So uh, you're right, you know, uh, athletics serves a big purpose. It keeps young guys off the street, keeps them involved, keep, gives them uh, uh, something to strive for. And hopefully uh, Hudson Valley you know, plays a big part in that. In this story, Jacob Boston spoke with Hudson Valley Community College's basketball coach, Michael E. Long. Jacob will bring us more coverage of the impact that sports activities have on communities. So listen for those interviews in future episodes. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazil-Hickey. And I'm Bria Barthel. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. The four stations are WOOCLP. 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. The show also streams online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And sharing is caring, so if you like what you hear, you can tell a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And now on to our next story. Troy Foundry Theater debuts its first musical this week. City of Myth, Ilium Sings, Ilium, an alternative name for Troy, is central in this musical. We reached out to the creators to learn more about their project. Troy Foundry Theater presents their first musical, City of Myth, Ilium Sings. The tagline on the poster is, We All Get Lost in Troy. I'm joined now by Emily Curro, co-founder of Troy Foundry Theater and performer in City of Myth, and Connor Armbruster, who gives musical direction to this performance. Welcome. Thank you. Hello, hello. Hi. So a while back, Troy Foundry Theater announced that it was working on developing a musical. The creation of this has been a collaborative one. And maybe, Emily, you can take the lead on this. How can you talk about the process and how Troy became this central character? Sure. Um, I think that we find more often than not that the city becomes a character in our work even if we don't try, <laughs> it just kind of happens. Um, it's so hyper present in like all of our lives. We all live here. Um, we all 
experience our lives here on a day-to-day basis. So it seeps into our work no matter what we do. And the last couple shows that we wrote actually also had like a historical link about a through line about the city of Troy. So it's something that we're kind of on a on a kick with, I guess, right now. Yeah. I don't know if you want to add any anything, Connor. Yeah, just that that subtitle, We All Get Lost in Troy, is actually one of the lines to a, a chorus of one of the songs, one of the introductory pieces. And uh, it was actually one of the first things that we wrote musically for this production way back in the spring before we had any further clear idea of what it was going to be about. So yeah. that is actually one of my follow-up questions is like, where does the music creation come? Is it a back and forth? Does the the melody come first, then the lyrics, then the theme? Like, what is that process of building this and collaboratively? Yeah, I was asking myself that, <laughs> that question about six months ago. It was very, very collaborative. It's very much a group effort. It's It's hard to even know like how to credit who composed what, because a lot of it was passed through like a game of telephone between many people. Um, But I will say that a lot of it originally came out of um, prompts that we would sort of give each other. And one of the first things that I did was when we knew that we were gonna have four main characters and that each of them would presumably have a song, I prompted each one of them to sing the melody or hum the melody of their character and provided no other information other than that and gave them like two days. And a couple of days later, I had in my inbox a lot of totally different sound files. Some people like whistled a short thing. There was one that was like two minutes long, like a fully realized song. (laughs) And, um, but there were these simple melodies that we could then take as our starting point like we have now four major motifs that we can use and and cast across this whole production and we had like a mini retreat before we did the big retreat where a lot of that kind of grew to begin a lot of the baseline melodies and variations yeah sounds like it's very important to have that retreat that space to really just play and focus on this development how important is that to the creation of each of your performances? I think it's like, we couldn't have done it. We couldn't have made this musical without going to the Elizabeth Murray artist residency, which is through Collarworks gallery. Um, we've gone every year for the last three years and it's an isolated week, seven days. And I think this year we wrote like 10 songs or something. Yeah. 10 songs by the end of that week. Yeah. It was a very powerful time. Yeah. It was super important. It's like in the middle of the woods. It's just us. We all eat together. We sleep in the same house. We spend all day together. And it's a very focused time of craft work. And we can't do it without funding. And that's one of the things that I work really hard at all year long is to find grants that support this type of um, vacation, I guess it's, it's like a working vacation, uh, for all of us. Cause you know, a lot of us have jobs and we have to take time off and people have kids and families and, 
A place like the Collar Works residency up on the Elizabeth Murray farm is perfect for us. Hmm. I like this idea of of prompts that you gave, Connor. And the Troy Foundry Theater wrote that this musical is a love letter to the city of Troy. Some good, some bad, some love, some loss. Troy, I think people have some mixed feelings about it. What were those first visceral reactions to these prompts? Hmm, yeah. Well, I think that there was... There was definitely a mixture which was was helpful in the writing process and like something that i wanted to do because our characters are so closely based on the actors that portray them to the point where they're actually they use the same names um i wanted these these pieces and this like connection to the city to feel really real and like it was coming from them personally it was kind of hard to imagine going in and like writing a song for somebody else. Um, so it was good to kind of sit down and work with each of them and with the other musicians, Matt Malone and Michael Gregg, um, to kind of meet with each of these characters and and come up with things from there. So that felt that felt like comfortable to the person because that's ultimately what you what comes across in the performance is how much the each character really believes in what they're saying and i think that each of them are united the common theme that we found through all of them is that each of them are dealing with loss a loss of connection to others perhaps like a a physical loss in their life and they're each finding ways of reconnecting what is your own personal relationship to troy that's a loaded (laughs) question um (laughs) I first moved to Troy in 2003, I think, and I went to college here. I lived in like four or five different apartments during that time all over the city, some good, some bad. And I had a great college experience. I was doing theater, but the city was, it was different. Um, It was less inspiring to me at that point. Um, And I like couldn't wait to get out (laughs) when I left. And then I moved all around. I lived all over the place, all over the country. And when we decided to found Troy Foundry Theater, um, we took a lot of time to figure out where we wanted this theater company to be. And through many conversations with David Gerard my co-founder, we decided Troy was the spot because of how real it felt, because of how we felt when we were there, the connections we made with the people in the city. There's a camaraderie and a kind of magic, and I don't think I'll ever leave. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I resonate with the, the connection to the artistic community, especially. I, so I grew up in Bethlehem outside of Albany, So I've been in the area my whole life and I also went to college here and I wasn't really sure for a while in school what I was going to do afterwards, but it was during college and a little bit after I was like on a leave of absence and I started to really get plugged into the local music scene um, around Troy and in Albany. And that's where I just found, I just realized that this, this was my home. You know, this is the, this is the place that I wanted to be. It was a really good and it still remains a, a very this great feeling of like shared um 
just like shared community and collaboration. It doesn't feel super competitive and like people trying to push each other out of the way. It always feels like we're, everybody's trying to bring the water up together. And that's something I really love about it. And it was actually through that, that I met these fine folks over here at the Troy Foundry Theater just a couple of years ago. Wonderful. We are just about out of time, but the opening day is just coming up. So where can we see this compelling musical that's about to happen? So the opening night would be Wednesday, October 26th, 8 p.m. And then it runs the next day, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then the following week, it runs Wednesday through Saturday again, ending on November 5th. All shows are at 8 p.m. The performance takes place at the old Troy Kitchen, which is 77 Congress Street in Troy. You can go online to TroyFoundryTheater.com. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. And all the info to get tickets is right at your fingertips. Thank you both so much for joining us on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. Christina. Troy Foundry Theater turns five on October 31st few days before this world premiere of City of Myth, Ilium Sings. For more information, you can visit Troy Foundry Theater, and that's theater with R-E. And continuing with our arts coverage, Focus Lab artist-in-residence Jack Magai presents an interactive shoreline performance piece called The New Island Project that will close the To Flow Both Ways Hudson Riverfront Exhibition on October 29th. Hudson Mohawk Magazine's Sina Basili Hickey spoke with Matt Magai. My name is Jack Magai. I'm an artist and I live in Troy, New York, and I do uh, experimental performances, some of which involve me moving my body and many of which involve other people following directions that I write. I also have been a supporter of the Sanctuary and WOOC from the beginning and in my day job as an arborist have helped out with things that the Sanctuary needed. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Jack Magai. You are the current artist in residence at Focus Lab. Can you talk about the body movement that you just gave us a brief introduction to and how you have taken your art practice to work with Focus Lab? Sure. First off, I want to mention that uh, Focus Lab is a place that I'm just getting to know, but I think it's FOCUS is an acronym that stands for Future of Cities and Urban Sustainability. And it's a gallery space in downtown Troy on 3rd Street. And they have a show right now. To flow both ways. To flow is, both ways. Very good. Which is on its way out. Yeah. And so just the background of this is that it's a show that covers uh, the various histories or perspectives on history of this river that we live along in its whole course. And also tries to look at solutions to f problems that are anticipated right now as far as climate change issues. So that's super interesting. I think it's a really good show. And so I was pleased to be asked to wind up the show by putting together a performance. And as far as using my body, this is a production, an event 
that I'm putting together that doesn't involve my dance background at all, really, more my background as a writer and sort of a thinker about nature. You mentioned finding solutions for the future of the health of our rivers and environments, ecological environments. How does art help in this discovery of solutions for the future? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, if we don't, if we continue to think about things in the way we've always thought about things, and that includes sort of how to most effectively exploit the resources around us, but also kind of to be pissed off about the inequities that we see around us and all these sort of ways that we look at things, then we're not having a good time. And, or some people are having a good time, but most people are not having a good time. And so my goal as an artist is to strive to give people an alternate perspective, to sort of like give them a surprisingly fun time in a setting that seems like it would be kind of depressing. And so that's, you know, this is the perfect opportunity for that because the riverfront of Troy is a historically underutilized place that people have dumped a lot of stuff in. And it's, but it's fascinating. And so I'm basically have set up a, um, a script that gives people sort of a, uh, both a passive appreciation of the site and then also an active way to sort of literally mine mine the site and pick it apart and find things within it. And that's what I'm up to. And it's happening on the shoreline, right? You're it's happening on the shoreline in an bring, un bring undisclosed... Boots, I've been told. Uh, yeah, sensible shoes would be good. Nothing open because it's a wild place. It's essentially a wild place in the city, which is really a, fun. A secret. It's, it's an undisclosed location at the request of Rafe Larson from Focus Lab. So I'm, uh, I'm honoring that. We're going to meet in downtown near Monument Square. And if anybody listening to this is interested in participating, they can Go sign up. Futureofsmallcities.org, the website, has that. links to more of a description of your performance, which is called The New Island Project. That's right. And links to sign up. Could you talk about the title, the New Island Project? Why did where did that come from? Well, that's also a little bit of a secret. So the the end product of the piece relates to that. So at the very end, it will be clear why it's called a New Island Project. But I don't want to. I don't think I can say much more about it than that, except it sort of alludes to the human propensity for tearing apart and reforming land into islands and other things, like Green Island, for instance, so Starbuck of, Island. Mm, yeah. If what I'm understanding the performance is humans doing what we do, tearing things apart, do you hope that humans are observing the tendencies that we have or... Is it more of a reframing of human relationships to the plant world? Not just, well, as an aside, not just plants, but plants, animals, fungi, perhaps other things, and, inor you know, abiotic things, things that aren't living at all. But to your question, both. So I think that through 
behaving as humans behave and watching each other behave as humans behave, we can laugh at ourselves, but also appreciate how we're in the situation that we're in. Like, it's a serious topic, but it deserves a humorous approach, in my opinion. Could you talk about how sensory is a big part of your artwork? Sure. So I'm very interested in people's approach to nature and the desire of a lot of people to, you know, the, the great value that a lot of people in my class of people, so, you know, fairly well-educated white people go out and, you know, drive out into the woods and use all kinds of fossil fuels to go out to the Adirondacks and have these, like, bucolic experiences. And I'm curious how much of those the value of those experiences has to do with the site themselves and how much of it has to do with just the plan, just the mindset that, well, I'm going to go do this thing which will take me away from the rest of my life. And so um, some of the work I've been doing recently is designed to tease that apart. And in particular, I'm sort of working with a tradition of uh, Guy Debord from the Situationists, which was a a French group of artists, and they came up with this thing called the Derive, which was basically wandering around the city and just bumbling around and trying to participate in the city in a way very unlike what normal activities in the city would be like. So trying to take it in in a different way. And so I'm, I find that kind of inspiring, and I'm interested in having people approach their immediate surroundings or surroundings that don't seem to have a lot of nature experience opportunities and derive some kind of nature experience pleasure from those experiences. I assume you're talking about Troy and how a lot of people maybe don't see the nature within the city. Why do you think there is that disconnect with especially metropolitan areas of people and the environments around them? I'm not, I mean, I, I understand a bunch of it. I'm a child of 1970s suburban Cleveland myself. So I think it has a lot to do with the trends. I mean, you could connect it to a lot of things. Colonialism, uh, whiteness. I mean, all kinds of mm-hmm. lefty tropes. But you could, I'm not as concerned about it as I am about just noticing it and kind of nudging it in some way. So reconnecting these relationships. Oh, yeah, definitely. Getting people to to have a good time just noticing what's around them in a way that's very similar to any other experience of noticing what's around you, whether it's in some pristine wilderness or in your bathroom. We did briefly mention Rafe Larson, and he's worth mentioning again the founder of Future of Small Cities. And your performance is coming up on Saturday, October 29th, the New Island Project. 2 p.m. Jack McGuy, thank you so much. What would you like to leave our listeners with? Go down to the river, even if it's not part of my event, and just spend five or ten minutes looking at the water. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks. The New Island...
project is an exploration of the strata of human and natural forces on Troy's waterfront. More information at futureofsmallcities.org. Also, Jack has his own website, which is artistjackmagai.com, and Magai is spelled M-A-G-A-I. Okay, and we now switch to the art of poetry. Rebecca Shimeda, in her writing, often tells the stories of the working class. She once took a job as a waitress for her book, Waiting at the Dead End Diner, taking inspiration from the people who walked in the door and sat at her tables. In our episode's final segment, Tom Francis talks with Shimeda about her work. Rebecca Shimeda has worked hard over her time as a writer and editor to make poetry accessible to everyone, not just those in academia. She herself graduated with a B.A. in English and Creative Writing from SUNY New Paltz and an M.A. in Poetics and Creative Writing from San Francisco State University. She is the author of full-length books, Falling Forward, Cadillac Men, Waiting at the Dead End Diner, Our One-Way Street, and the following chapbooks, The Tear Duct of Our Storm, Dream Big, Work Harder, The Map of Our Garden, From Seed to Sin, and she's the co-author of Common Wages with Don Winter. In her writing, she often tells the stories of the working class. She once took a job as a waitress for a book, Waiting at the Dead End Diner, and got inspiration from the people who walked in the door and sat at her tables. In her book, Cadillac Men, Rebecca writes about the regulars who frequented the pool hall her and her husband opened in Kingston, New York. She read about one of those characters, Mikey Meatballs, at restaurant Navona in Albany on October 19, 2016. Mikey Meatball's been kicked out of every pool hall he's ever set foot in. He's forged checks, harassed patrons, hustled a small fortune, lost a small fortune. Once, he repeatedly rammed his car into a guy's truck over a botched bed. He's been locked up and drugged up. He blames it all on Agent Orange. In Vietnam, he was an officer. In Jersey, he owned a billiard hall. In Brooklyn, he owned an Italian delicatessen. They called him Papa Meeple. In Texas, he played a man for his Cadillac and won, but totaled it on his way back east. On Kate Ashbury, he sold a hookah to a hippie for 10 grand, claiming it was Jerry Garcia's. In Connecticut, he siphoned gas from some fish's car before winning his wedding band on the table. He's a regular in the police blotter, most recently for whipping his at a bagel shop owner for skimping him on cream cheese. <laughs> Once he convinced some kid he shot like because he was using a left-handed pool cue. Last week, he told me he saw my husband pick up a prostitute on Broadway just to see my jaw drop. Instead, I responded, well, at least he's getting some. <laughs> when Mikey looks into the table, he sees his own version of reality. Fifteen object balls, six pockets, and men who will believe anything he says if there's money on the table. The uh, Mikey meatballs came from, um, my husband and I owned a pool hall in Kingston, New York. And the pool hall um, had a colorful crew of people who came in. And it was right um, before the recession is when we opened it. And then when the recession hit, it was you know, a difficult time. 
and um, I was working full time and my husband was doing, you know, most of the time at the pool hall and doing other side business. And we kind of um, met all these characters that came in. And I say characters because they were characters and they became part of the poems that I wrote for a book called Cadillac Men. Um, Mikey Meatballs in particular was a well-known um, local pool player who was a good pool player, really good pool player. Um, he was known for um, getting into a lot of trouble uh, with the law. He um, actually, there was another pool hall and in the area and in Kingston and who the, we actually bought the equipment from the guy and that owned that pool hall. And Mikey Meatballs, that's not his real name, but he's a real person. He ended up actually driving his truck through the front of the pool hall and um, hitting it, hitting breaking the windows and stuff over a botched bet. So he was a character that was extremely, um, people in, in the area knew who he was. Um, and the funniest part about him was that his like we were in a pool league down there and his girlfriend wife kind of on and off again wife then divorce and girlfriend um actually heard me read that poem at a poetry reading and didn't know it was him we only had it for a year once the recession hit we couldn't even we couldn't keep the doors open uh pool halls like they're just so like especially when we had it uh this was I guess 2007 was the recession. So it was right around then. Um, you, you can't, the overhead is so high that you, to keep the doors open, we just couldn't do it. And we didn't have a bar initially. We kind of, we didn't want to do the whole bar thing. We wanted a kid friendly place, which you can't do. You need the money from alcohol, unfortunately. Right. So, um, you know, we did a year and then we had to close down. We couldn't, we just couldn't keep the doors open. It, we were losing money keeping the doors open. So we paid out our, um, we owed money and we paid it out and just closed. Rebecca is co-founder and editor of Trailer Park Quarterly, an online zine for poetry. She started TPQ with a desire to give poets who were not on the college and university circuit a chance to be read and appreciated by a larger global audience. The goal was much like Mark Kelly Smith's when he started the idea of a poetry slam in Chicago in the 1980s, giving the working class writer a platform to share their work. So Trailer Park Quarterly was um, initially uh, Daniel Crocker, who's a Missouri um, professor and poet, um, started Trailer Park Quarterly. And he asked me to join, like, I think about a year after he started. His whole idea is that he wanted, like, we were both academic poets. Um, you know, at in school, but in life we weren't really writing academic work, and we couldn't find places either of us where we really could showcase our work. And we wanted to create. He wanted to create a forum where we got real poetry from real people, and it was exciting and not you know about flowers or you know academic um, big words. We just wanted real real writing, raw, um, just beautiful stuff. And, you know, we both had the same vision. And so when he asked me, I was like, absolutely. And then we worked for, you know, God, it, I think it was like a, over a decade. 
um, on TPQ. And then he recently just took his back seat for a few years. Trailer Park Quarterly is currently accepting submissions for two upcoming issues. Rebecca goes on to talk about some ideas for these issues and trying new things with the online format. We're open for submissions from now until December 15th. Uh, we decided it was Jason Baldinger is uh, my co-editor right now. Um, we decided that we would we, we would read for two issues. So we would have one open period for two issues and we'll bank the work that we're saving. Uh, we're, cons- we're really thinking about doing an audio issue. Um, so that will be a component of one of the issues. I think it's so wonderful to hear a poem read. It's a totally different feel than, than what, looking at it, you know, on online because it's an online magazine, not on paper. Um, so we're really excited about that. And the, you know, we're getting some great, we already have like tons of submissions. So, and from writers that are amazing. And now working with the Hudson Valley Writers Guild, Shimeda wants to get students from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade involved in writing, editing, and publishing their very own literary and art magazine. Yes, so we're starting, um, the Hudson Valley Writers Guild um, is kind of starting a kids, um, a K through 12, I, I believe it's gonna be more high school depending on what submissions we get. Um, magazine that showcases um, students of the Hudson Valley's work, uh, both poetry and art. Uh, it's it's slow moving. We're getting you know we we're getting there. We have some some small contri- contributions. We're reaching out to educators to um, let them know what's going on. But it's really exciting because I think that the guild. Um, you know, hasn't really had the audience of young adults. So I think that this is an important step forward. And by getting a new audience, we're really opening the door to some, you know, new, new ideas, some innovations that will really change. And she explains the importance of getting young writers involved. Sometimes kids don't realize that they have a place, a voice, and their voice is often, you know, censored. So the Mm -hmm. idea that they'll be able to have a voice and and work with other writers, you know, that would be my goal. You know, I'd, I'd love to see where it goes and I'm hoping that it, you know, a lot of people will contribute and add to it. So it's, it's exciting. I'm really excited about that. When she's not writing or working on her next book of poems, you'll find her in the classroom. Rebecca teaches at an alternative high school and career technical center in the capital region, working closely with the next generation of writers, artists, and working class heroes. You can find more of her work at her website, Rebecca-Schmeda.com. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. And Tom Francis digs into the Hudson Valley Writers Guild archives every week to highlight a reading from the past and bring us an interview from the present. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki, co-host and engineer. And I'm Bria Barthel. Thanks to all my fellow volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley, Jacob Boston, Tom Francis, and the incredible Sina Bazila Hickey. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or you can send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. So until next time, thank you.